0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So To that end, we believe that Scripture was given to us that we may know, worship, and obey Jesus. So we open God's Word every week um, so that we may know Him more. So this morning, we are going to continue on in a two-part sermon series um, on Thanksgiving before we dive into the Advent series. So today is the last day of this little mini-series. And we are going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. And if you do not have one, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. Um, if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that copy with you as a gift from us today. So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated.
1: Good morning. Hope you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving with friends and family. Uh, if you're anything like me, I'm still digesting my last uh, helping of dressing, so Excuse me this morning, I'm just kidding. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed your time. Hope you were able to uh, reflect on the goodness of God and um, hopefully you were able to enjoy the presence of others. Uh, If not, I certainly understand that as well. I have in-laws, so I'm just kidding. (laughs) My mother-in-laws are here, so. (laughs) Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Ty Gaston. I uh, serve as one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. And like Jenna said, we are closing out our uh, two-part series on gratitude, which we felt like was a, a good segue into Advent as we look forward to the incarnation of Christ or look back on the incarnation of Christ and look forward to the future Advent or future return of Jesus. So we wanted to start with a heart of gratitude and uh, so, Court, preach on the on the first part, and I will be closing out here with the second part um, in Colossians uh, chapter number 3, verse 17. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we will get in. And while I'm praying, would you please uh, not just pray uh, with me, uh, but uh, pray that God's uh, word would be living and active in our hearts today. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we just first want to give thanks for the opportunity that we have to worship you. We could be anywhere in the world right now, but we're here sitting underneath your word by the power of your spirit. And we ask that that you would change us. You would make us more like you. That this morning as we submit before your word, that we uh, help us to come before it humbly knowing that you are the Lord of our lives, not anything else, that your words are the, are the words that dictate how we live, not anything else. So God, help us to come to your word with an open heart, with an open mind, with a heart that is, that is eager to hear for what our King may say to us. Now we love you. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So Court last week opened up this series on gratitude in part one by uh, going through Colossians chapter 3 verses 15 through 16 and, and uh, he primarily talked about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts and how in a world that is chaotic, a lot of things happening, the thing that should be the primary dictator of how we feel inside of our hearts is the peace of Christ. That no life circumstance, no uh, rough situation we may be in, nothing about our jobs, our families, our friends, that should not rule our hearts, but the peace of Christ found in the person and work of Jesus should be the thing that rules primarily. Secondarily, he talked about the word of God should dwell in us richly, that this is These are our marching orders on how we live our life, that it's not anybody else's uh, words, it's not our own words, it's not our experiences that get to dictate how we live, but it's God's word and God's word alone. And it's his word that we run to for anchored truth, it's the light unto our path, and there's nothing else. And because we've been given the spirit that rules inside of our heart and the word of God for us to drink out of daily, we should have a heart of gratitude. We should have a heart of gratitude that we didn't just have a God that was transcendent at the end of the universe and just set things into motion and then checked out. But instead, we have a uh, we have an imminent God who's with us and promised to always be with us. We have a personal God that interacts and interweaves in throughout our daily lives, and that should give us a heart of gratitude. And so, what I want to do this morning is I want to I want to zoom out a little bit and not just talk about what rules inside the heart, but that how this heart of gratitude that we should have should shape and mold everything that we do. And you're going to see it. when we. You just read the text. We're going to go through it again. You're going to see it. it should. It's a large, sweeping statement that every, whatever we do in word or deed, everything should be done in the name of the Lord. That is a gigantic, sweeping statement, and I think begs uh, us to ask the question, what does that mean? What does that mean for us today so uh, let's get into it we're gonna be here's the first part we're gonna go through it part by part and break it down the first one is Colossians 3 verse 17 says and whatever you do in word or deed so before we get started, we need to we need to know that this church in Colossia wasn't started by Paul; it was started by a colleague of his uh, named Epaphras. And Epaphras um, just needed some guidance, really, to report back to Paul, and then also on what he should do moving forward. He visited Paul and updated him on how well the church was doing, and brought uh, brought Paul up to um, up to date on the social pressures that they had felt. And Paul wrote a letter to the Church of Colossia to encourage the Colossian church to not only address these issues, but to challenge them to a life that was filled with a greater devotion and marked by something different than what they had been marked by before. And so uh, he even went as far as to, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he wrote uh, what's uh, sort of like a Messiah poem to help them remember. To help them remember that just as the divine glory dwelled in Christ, so it uh, so Christ also indwells us. We are in Christ, and because we are in Christ, our actions and our words and our thoughts must be different than what they were before. The old man is no longer present. The new man, the new creation, is what is what's present. And they faced two major social. Uh, pressures that they had to resist the first one was a mystical polytheism so in other words they grew up worshiping a bunch of different gods they had a god over everything that could they that they could worship and when these people who had grown up worshiping a different god for a different thing they came to know jesus jesus just became just another one of those gods that they worshiped he just lined up right along right along neatly aside the god of sun and the God of whatever it is that you want to put in there, they had a God for it, and they worshiped it, and Jesus just became another one of those. And so Paul said that they had to no longer worship these others these other gods, but instead Christ stood above them, and he should be worshipped only and primarily. We run the same risk by making Jesus just one of the things that we do. We run the same risk by worshiping other things, whether it be job, whether it be sports, whether it be our children, family, friends, you name it. There's a bunch of different things that we can do. While we may not call them gods, the way that we live our life and the way that we align our life around them and how they dictate how we go and move, they it's very clear, clear that functionally they are our gods and that we just align Jesus neatly right alongside them. Instead, we are to lay that down. So that's the first pressure they felt was a kind of a mystical polytheism. The second uh, pressure that they felt was from the Jewish culture uh, in Judaism. There's great pressure from the Jews to the Gentiles that they must uh, align and uh, uphold the laws in order to Become more like Jesus, so they lived this Jesus plus type of lifestyle. That they had to not yes worship Jesus as Lord, but you also had to be circumcised. You also have, had to uphold these ceremonial laws. There was everything that everything that they had to uh, the Jews had to do. They attach onto Jesus, and you become a better Christian. In, in fact, you become an authentic Christian when you not only follow Jesus, but you also follow the law. And we run the same risk, just like them, by trying to earn our salvation instead of running to Jesus. And to accept either one of these is both false and compromising to the Christian faith. Paul knew that at the time, and it's true for us today. Uh, that because Jesus has tried, we don't have to fear anything else ruling and dictating our life and what may come out of that, that rule We don't have to fear that any longer because Jesus has triumphed over all things. Jesus has triumphed over all spiritual powers and freed them and us from any obligation to any man-made gods that we may have. Jesus also fulfilled the law, which lacked the power to change. In fact, the, the law just revealed what we were, what we were not, but it wasn't until Christ fulfilled the law that we now have the power to change who we are as a new creation. In other words, because we are believers and we align underneath the person work of Jesus, we don't work for God's favor, we work from it. We don't work for to attain God's favor in our life, but instead what Christ has done for us can now allows us to live how we need to live. Our words and deeds are shaped and molded and changed because of what Christ did. We don't change mold and shape in order to make sure that our salvation is secure. It was already secure in Christ and now we work from there. So followers of Jesus are freed from the bondage of sin and have the power of the resurrection living inside of them to change them. And this is when the Bible refers to a new creation, this is what this means, that we join and come alongside a new humanity that now exists in Christ. uh, And we, and this new humanity exists because we have been joined with him. And that means now no part of human existence remains untouched by the loving and liberating rule of Jesus. There's no part of our life, word or deed, that is out of the purview of the gospel and how we should shape and mold our lives. None of it. In fact, that's why you get this big junk drawer statement from the Apostle Paul in the beginning when he says, well, in whatever you do, Because he just got done in all of chapter 3 explaining what you need to put to death, what no longer should be a part of your life, and then what you also need to uh, put on so that way you could be a fully devoted follower of Christ. He listed all these things out you need to kill, all these things you need to bring to life, and just in case I missed anything, in whatever you do, in word or deed. And I think in deed it's a lot easier for us to to wrap our minds around. We the the idea of action doing wrong or doing right is very it, it's very easy for us to to grab a hold of that. I think the the part of this statement that gets really convoluted is not the is not the deed part but the word part, the speech. And I think that gets convoluted because it's so wrapped up into how we live our life that it just gets muddled. I mean, millions of words are going to be said on this Sunday morning amongst one another. So much of our life is, la- is wrapped up in speech, whether we're reading it, whether we're saying it, whether we're listening to it. So much is wrapped in what is said that I think oftentimes what's, how we should use our speech and how we should not use our speech gets muddled and that sometimes things can just, even bad speech that is not honoring to God can just become normal. It can get normalized by the culture. And we have to be careful because if not, we can, our speech can be influenced by the world. And the truth is is that we're not careful enough. If we're not careful, our speech will be modeled after how the world does it and not how Christ does it. And I think it's really important. I think words are really important to God. It's why he chose to not only give us the word of God in written form, but also Jesus is the word of God and he spoke things into existence. The world came into existence by God speaking which means that we have to be careful with how we use our words and that because our entire life is wrapped up in speech in one form or another, we have to be sure to make sure that it's honoring to God and not taking away from it. And this idea of worldliness and speech is, is aligned by uh, David Wells. And he says this, he says, a si- worldliness is a system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and is true from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seems normal. It's interesting that he says righteousness seems strange. Why? Because it's counter cultural. It's counter to the world. In other words, there's so much... Uh, so many words that are being said on a daily basis in one form or another that we have to make sure that we're not just getting lost in it but that we are doing it in a way that honors God, honors Christ and at the end of the day the world is going to look at it and feel like it is strange. When you choose not to engage in gossip the person on the other side of that is going to feel like you're uh, you're betraying them because you're unwilling to betray someone else. It's, it's important that we bridle the tongue that God has given us because the Bible talks about how powerful the tongue can be. The Bible refers to the tongue as a, as a bit in the mouth of a horse. A horse is a powerful animal. I don't know, it's, it's one thing to see a horse on TV. It's another thing to get right in front of it. It is a powerful animal. And to know that it can be controlled by a small little bit that's in the mouth that's in its mouth is incredible. And the Bible says that's what our tongue is like. The way that we use our speech is can move mountains. It's incredible. The Bible also refers to it as a rudder to a ship. And two of my years that I spent in the Coast Guard, I was on a on a ship that was uh, that was two hundred feet long. And when you get up there, it's two hundred feet long. It's nine hundred tons, which is a lot. If you don't know, it didn't move or turn fast, but it was. The, the the helm that we used to turn the boat was three inches long. You would miss it. You would never know that that's what we used. The, you get the picture when you watch uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, like the Black Pearl, you got this gigantic helm that you're turning. Not at all. It's a small little piece of metal that you grab to turn an entire 200-foot, 900-ton boat. And the Bible says that our tongue is like that, that it has the ability the ability to shape and mold not only ourselves, but those around us, that our speech is incredibly important. Proverbs 15, 1 through 2 says this about the tongue. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So in other words, when we use our tongue and speech in a way that would honor God, it's like a tree of life in someone. Not only a tree of life inside of ourselves, but when we speak it to other people, life is born and it's not just a little plant, but it's a tree of life flourishing in the heart of that person. But on the flip side, on the flip side, a perverse tongue breaks the spirit. And I don't know if you ever felt discouraged or your spirit being broken, but it makes you not want to move. You don't want to do anything. You just want to sit. You have no desire to get up and do whatever it is that you need to do. And so the power of the tongue, the power of speech, that we're, sub, that we're called to use to honor God, can either breathe life into people, breathe life into us, or we can be broken by it. So we have to be careful in how we use it. In Colossians 4, later on in, the, in this book, Paul says this, that let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. And I love the language that he used here because it's hearkening back to Jesus saying that we should be the salt of the earth. So in other words, the way that we speak and treat other people should show the gospel to them. That when people hear you speak, even in the moments that you are frustrated, even in the moments that you're joyful, even in the moments that things aren't going right and when things are going just as you imagined, that people would hear your speech and not only wonder what it is that allows you to do that, but wonder about the God that has so shaped your life that you could. That our speech should be seasoned in such a way that it paints a picture of the kingdom. So the Bible in Colossians 3 verse 17 expounds on that a little bit more, that it's not just just word or deed, But it it keeps going. So section two says this, that we should do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice that it doesn't say in the name of the Savior, Jesus. And Paul's very intentional with his words. And I I think this is on purpose. And yes, Jesus is our Savior. That is 100% true, but he doesn't use that language. Instead, he says in the name of the Lord, Jesus and I think it's because we are typically okay with Jesus being Savior and God, but Lord over our life is an entirely different conversation. The old adage goes, "It's better to ask for forgiveness rather than for permission." And if you're anything like me, this was the anthem of your childhood. And if you're anything like my children, that's still the anthem that runs. They would rather just go ahead and do it. They don't want to come to Daddy and ask because they know I'm gonna, I might say no, and they just want to live that way. And I think that this is true for a lot of a lot of the way that we live we want we don't want to go to God and allow him to be lord over our life to dictate how we should live to make decisions for us we don't want that for one of two reasons one i think we desire the autonomy i think there's a part of us inside of our hearts that desires to make decisions to be the captain of our own ship to continue the analogy i think there's a part of us that thinks our justice is the right justice our grace or lack of it, is the right move to make. Our decisions are the right ones. I think there's a part of us that likes that. And more often than not, we're not prepared to do what the Lord would have us. So we are just willing to do whatever we want to do. That's reason number one. Reason number two, though, I think we have settled into our identity as a sinner and not as a child of God. Yes, we are sinners, and yes, we will continue to sin. Sin's not going away until Christ returns, but that is once you have given over to the lordship of Jesus and been rescued by his person and work, that is no longer your primary identity. Your identity is not defined by the sin that you have, but instead by the king that you serve. You are now a child of God. Colossians 3.1 says this, if then you have been raised with Christ... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So if you have been raised with Christ, your vantage point is now different. Later on in the book of Colossians, it's gonna call us holy and beloved. These are the identities that we should carry as believers, not as a sinner. But I think that we use this this old adage, I'd rather ask for uh, forgiveness than permission, because we understand the gospel and that God forgives. Not that we should change, but we, we say, okay, well, I know that God will forgive. And because of that, and I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm just always going to sin. And God's always going to forgive. So I'm just going to let things ride out and see how this goes. I think we get caught up in the normal everyday rhythms of life without really even giving any thought to it. Because we just, they're in the back of our mind, we know, oh, yeah, well, God will forgive. I'm a sinner, right? I'm a sinner. I, I sin. That's what I do. But the truth is, is that we are called to live differently. And so when Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, he's not talking about how one day we will all leave earth and the world will fade away, even though that is true. he's what he Instead, what he's saying is that we should set our minds on Christ and his kingdom, and the challenge for us is to live in the present as the kind of people that will become that we will become when Christ returns. Not to live like one day things will get better, but instead to say no, we are citizens of God's kingdom today and that is going to dictate how we live. That is going to arrange and align how we make decisions. And he juxtaposes in the rest of that chapter chapter the old humanity which is distorted sexuality and destructive speech in Colossians 3 against the new humanity. Which is given to us that we're called to uh, live lives of mercy, of generosity, of forgiveness, and love, and that the old humanity, the old way of doing things, the old way of making ourselves lord or making other people lord over our lives, is done, and and has died on the cross, and the the new humanity is born again. So I think we need to ask, what is the new? What does it mean? to be to live in the new humanity it means that we live to the glory of Christ and not our own benefit we live to his kingdom not our own kingdom that it's no longer us that are making decisions we are not Lord but instead everything that we do is underneath the banner of the gospel and that we didn't just get saved from sin but we were saved for Christ we are rescued from despair but pushed forward to Christ And this freedom means that we don't attempt to use God and others for our own gain. It means that when we interact with other people, that we can do so in a way that would not only bring life to ourselves, uh, but would honor God and bring life to others. It means that we can love our spouses and our children without manipulation. It means that we can do our jobs without self-congratulation. It means that we can walk alongside friends and family without unrealistic expectations because they don't fill the void in our hearts anymore. They're not Lord over our lives. We can forgive others because God has forgiven us fully. We can love others because he has loved us perfectly. We can serve others with joy because Christ served us with great passion, sacrifice, and delight. We live our life with a deep gratitude for what Christ has done for us, and this shapes everything that we do. We are, we, are great, we should be grateful and have a heart of gratitude towards the Lord that has died for us. Really, what I'm saying here is that because Christ has given His life for us, we should give all of our life to Him. And this type of lifestyle is a lifestyle of worship, that in every moment, we're not asking the question, am I allowed to do what I'm about to do? But instead we're asking the question, how can I glorify God in this? So what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Colossians 1.16 informs us on this a little bit. It says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. So, what does it mean to do everything to the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, first, we do everything by him. So we do it underneath his his authority. He is Lord over our life, and he's the one that makes decisions. We don't make decisions. He is in control. We are not in control. Even in our moments where we feel like everything is right, and this is not in my notes, but I just I want to say it. Even in the moments where we feel like jobs going great money's in the bank account, the family's healthy. Everything is going right. Even whenever that's true, we're still not in control. It feels like it. It's an illusion, but we're still not. It's only in the moments that things go wrong that we actually start to say, hey God, I need you to take control over this. When truthfully, he's had control the whole time. And that just because things go bad doesn't mean that he has gone bad. But we have a God that knows all, that knows more, and is far more wiser than we ever could. And so when something doesn't go wrong, or when something doesn't go right in our eyes, it could have gone infinitely more wrong if it it had gone in our way. God's way is the best way. God's way is the right way. He is Lord, and we do everything by Him under His authority. Also, we do everything through Him. In other words, we do it in his stead, by his power. We don't do it on our own power, under our own um, ability, but instead we lean into Christ who has promised to be with us until the end of the ages, so that way we would carry for his kingdom and and the next one for him, we would carry over his purposes. So we don't live our life for our own purposes, but we live it for his. That his life is the one that we lift up, not our own and really, at the end of the day, the, thing, the question that we should be saying and asking ourselves is, is the way that I'm living my life right now, is it, is it adding to, and not that Christ needs us to add to his reputation, but do, do our lives exemplify and lift up the name of Christ or, do, or does it take away take, take away from it? In other words, when people look at the way that we live, do they see Jesus or do they see us? what do they see? That's what it means to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And everything means everything. In the Greek, it means everything. It means all things. There's nothing not in this category. It's a juncture term that Paul wanted to make sure he fit. Everything, that means everything that we watch on TV or on the internet, it should be honorable to God. The person that we, the people that we interact with at work, annoying or not, the way that we interact with them should be glorifying and honor and honorable to God. The friends that treat us well and the friends that betray us, we should love them in a way that is honorable to God. When kids disobey, you drop kick them, and then, just kidding, and then. You do it in a way that's honorable to God. Let's just put it that way. How you spend your money should be done in a way that is honorable to God. If there's anything that would call us liars, it's how we spend our money. Truthfully. And I say that from as a man that wrestled with this deeply for so many years and didn't really be, like get this kingdom vision of how to spend money until about four years ago. Our checkbooks will call us a liar on what we, on what we worship. It's, it's proof. I, it, I think that's the reason why Jesus talks about money so much. The way that we spend our money. It's the, it's the only thing that Jesus ever says can be your master outside of him. You have to choose between two masters. And he, he either puts himself up or money. I think it's important that we stop and reflect and ask ourselves, how are we spending it? Does it push forward my kingdom or does it push forward God's kingdom? I think it's important to ask. The question always comes back to, does this get me more of Jesus? Because we are called to do everything in his name, that means that there's an intentionality in the life of the believer. It means that everything has a purpose, that we're not just called to be in autopilot mode mindlessly allowing the rhythms of life to dictate our direction that i mean i just got done with football season with my son and so it felt like everything was in autopilot you know you go to work you go to practice go to work go to practice you eat sleep go to work go to practice it just felt like everything was just moving in the direction on autopilot and things were seamless they were working great but if you're if you're not careful and if you don't do that with intention, then your soul will dry up. And we're not called to live in an, auto, in an autopilot state, but instead every area of a life, everything for the life of the believer should be done with intention. This brings me to my last section, the last part of this text, Colossians 3.17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we are called to live with grateful hearts. Some versions of this text say that in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, and as you go, give thanks to him. It's this idea of a posture of the heart that is continually giving thanks, that as you go, whether good or bad comes your way, it doesn't matter what you do, but in everything that you do, you should do it in the name of the Lord Jesus so whatever comes our way, we look to God and that even in the rough things, we can be grateful and rejoice. My wife gets frustrated at me because I'm an eternal optimist uh, to my own detriment. I uh, I always think everything's going to be okay. And, uh, and so I'll, even in the, the bleakest of circumstances, I'll just say, it's fine. It's okay. It's fine. And I have reasons for that, but at the end of the day, sometimes it's not healthy that I do that. But the truth is, is that in, the, in our darkest of moments, we have to be able to say that because we, are, because we are in Christ and because we receive the common grace of God, it's never as bad as it could be. It may be bad, and it may be rough, and as you go along your way, you may encounter something that seems insurmountable, but even, but for one, it's not insurmountable for God, and two, it's never as bad for you as it could have been. This uh, this past Thanksgiving, a couple of days ago, my uh, Thanksgiving did not go how we thought it was going to go. We went to Shreveport. We knew that was going to happen. We visit our grandparents, whom we love deeply. Now, they uh, they live in Shreveport, Louisiana, and we all live in, in Houston and Oklahoma, and we just go there because uh it's just it's just what we do every year it's nostalgic for us i've had thanks either thanksgiving or christmas there every i mean every day of my every uh holiday every year of my life so when we went there we did our normal thing we ate turkey we ate uh, ate the sides we stuffed our faces and we laughed and reminisced and um talked about what we were going to do for black friday and the whole the normal like thanksgiving family gig at least that's normal for us um, but what we didn't realize is that the whole time Caleb's playing outside and my son has uh, pretty bad asthma. Uh, by that, I mean, it's like acute onset asthma is as in it, it comes in, a, in an instant and turns in a moment and you won't know it until it's too, in, I wouldn't say too late, but until it's too late for lack of a better word. And he had been playing outside and apparently he has an, a, an allergy to pine trees. And so he'd been playing outside and for whatever reason, he thought it was fun to knock the bark off of pine trees and that's what he was doing for literally hours and uh, and he was sweeping up pine straw and doing all that stuff and lo and behold about 1 o'clock in the morning we, uh, we we knew earlier in the day he had some out like his nose was running but we didn't think anything of it he hadn't really been sick for about 7 or 8 months but he went to sleep and about 1 o'clock in the morning my wife and I woke up to him like deeply sucking in air could, couldn't breathe It was uh, you could see his ribs it was a really bad he had a fever he was a uh, he couldn't sleep, so he was kind of moaning in his sleep, and so we were like, oh, my gosh. we This had happened before, so we knew what was going on. So we took him to the hospital, and his oxygen levels, if you don't know, they should be at about 94 or above. They were at 84. So it was low, and so we knew, okay, this is real. And so we ended up, over Thanksgiving, staying in the hospital in Treeport uh, for two days, and you know, it was at a women's hospital too, but I told Caleb, hey, listen, man, don't worry about that. All right, don't worry about it, man. It's the closest one by this does not define you, Um, but, but, um, so we were there for two days, and, and it was great, the, like, the doctors were fantastic, they really cared for my child well, Uh, they had his best interest at heart, Uh, he made a full recovery, he's, um, he's here today, so he's, he's doing great, he's doing great, but I, what I do know is that as bad as that was, it could have been worse, could have been worse. And I know people's stories have gone past my story and some have not been as bad. I know that that the there's a wide-ranging narrative to everyone's story, but even as bad as it could be, it's never as bad as it could be. Because God's gracious and caring hand is at stay. And even if we can't see it, it's true. I think it has to be has to be noted that in this book in Colossians, Paul is imprisoned. He's writing from prison. So he had been beaten, arrested, and thrown in prison. And when he's writing to his friends in Colossia, what he's saying is, please pray that God would open a door for the word. And I love the language there because he doesn't say, please pray that God opened the door of my jail cell. But he says, open the door for God's word to go forward. So in other words, in everything that he did, anything that was coming his way, even if he was beaten and thrown in prison, he was hoping for God's kingdom to go forward. He was hoping for everything that he did, good or bad, to be done to the name of the Lord Jesus and his kingdom and not his own. That's important to know because at the end of the day, God can take the worst of circumstances and use it, not only for your good and his glory, but for the good of others too, for the good of his kingdom. In Psalm 51, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, had a man murdered, and it had been about a year, if you look at the timeline in the Bible. He had gotten away with it for a year. No one knew that he did it. And for a year, he's just sitting there. Who knows what he was going through, but we do know that he at least considered the fact that he maybe he got away with it. Unfortunately, even though nobody else knew, God did. And so God sent a man named Nathan to go confront him. And he went up to David and he tells him, tells him this fantastic story that uh, ends up catching him in the lie. And David repents before God and everyone. And Psalm 51 is outlining his repentance before God. And in that Psalm, David says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In other words, he's acknowledging God is Lord over all. He is king over everything. And he was the one that determined that these bones that I have, this normal life that I had, normal life that I had, should be broken. He was the one that determined that it should. And he was good for it because it would have been far worse if he just allowed me to stay as I was. And so God, let the bones you have broken rejoice. And that's the kind of posture that a believer should have the heart of gratitude, the giving thanks along the way that whatever comes before us, we're going to be willing and have a heart posture that says, thanks be to God. So I want to close by reading another portion of Colossians because I think it's it's really important. It's uh, at the very beginning of Colossians chapter three verses two through three. And it says this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So in other words, as a believer, our mind should be thinking about Christ and his kingdom, not ours. Not things that are going on in our lives, but our minds should be set and should start with Christ and his kingdom doesn't mean we don't consider the things of this world it doesn't mean we don't consider friends and family and work and money and food and all the things that we enjoy we shouldn't it doesn't mean we shouldn't consider those things it just means that our heart should be set on the things above should be set on Christ then it ends like this for you have died the old man is dead the old humanity has passed away as a believer you are a new creation in Christ for you have died, your lordship over your life. The captain of your ship has died. Christ has taken the helm. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So in other words, you, are, you have a safe and secure future if you are in Christ that you can have a heart of gratitude because there's nothing that can shake the state of your soul because your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's secure, it's unmoving. I'm I'm reminded of the story of Moses when he encounters God and God says, you can't see me, but I'll hide you in the cleft of this rock. That's the picture that I get here. The picture that I get is Christ has provided a place for us to be hidden in him so that way it doesn't matter what comes our way but that we're secure and we're safe that we can give thanks as we go along the way because our life the state of our soul is hidden with Christ in the cleft and that cleft is unmoving it's unshaking we can be sure that the state of our soul is in the place that it needs to be because of Christ So my question for you is this. What would it look like for you to submit everything to Jesus? What would it look like for you to be so grateful for what he's done for you that you would would be willing to say, take all of me? And then secondly, are you prepared to do what you need to do to follow him? Are you prepared to give everything to him? And lastly, what are you holding back And what needs to change? And these are questions that we're going to have to ask and questions that we need. If we're gonna have a flourishing relationship with Jesus, if that tree of life is going to flourish inside of us and blossom out, the only way that we move forward is being able to answer those questions. What are we holding back? And what needs to change? If you stand, I'll pray for us. Father God, we come before you and I would be remiss if I didn't ask and stop and give thanks for all that you've done in my life, for the life of the people in front of me. God, that even though things may go wrong, they never go as wrong as they could be. God, we are grateful and thankful for your staying hand, stopping the storms and chaos of this world with being as bad as it could be we're grateful for the cleft in Christ that you have given us so God in the areas that we are not we are not walking in step with the gospel whether it's in word or in in deed if we haven't submitted everything before you I just ask that you would for one reveal those places show us where we are not we are not like you Show us where we are not walking in step with your gospel. Show us where we need to change. And then God, don't just reveal it and back away, but give us the strength to do it. Let the power of your resurrection inside of us allow the dead things that are there to live. God, it's by your power alone that we can do this. It's by your authority alone that we can do this. And God, we just pray that as we Go along our way that we would have hearts of gratitude. And God, that we would be reminded each and every day of the grace that you have extended to
0: us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.